This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Netflix and the original documentary, My Own Man. When filmmaker David Sampliner discovers that he's about to become a father, his fear and insecurities send him on an emotional, humorous quest to find his own manhood. My Own Man is streaming now, only on Netflix. And by Retail Me Not, the app that offers you coupons from 50,000 stores all in one place. Find deals like 60% off, free shipping, and free gifts with purchase. Get an invite to download the Retail Me Not app on your phone by texting CULTURE to 42767. Again, text CULTURE to 42767. Message and data rates may apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, America's One Night Stand with Robin Thicke edition. It's Wednesday, March 18th, 2015, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the Blurred Lines verdict. A Los Angeles jury ruled that the song sounds too much like Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. And then, We will discover Snapchat's Discover feature, the wildly popular Insta-texting disappearing text app for teens, now has content channels. And so we will peruse the content and let you know what we think. And finally, titles. The New York Times ran a great piece, What I Almost Called My Play, featuring interviews with various playwrights who have shows up in New York right now, which made us think, what makes a title good? And on today's Slate Plus segment, we'll talk about copycattery and how even the most well-intentioned journalists sometimes end up sounding like other journalists. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey, Julia. How you doing? Pretty well. Steve is once more out. I forget where he is. I think in another hemisphere or a far side of the equator. He's still submerged in his altered states, coffin in Alabama somewhere. No, no, no. I think he might be in Argentina. Anyway, where in the world is Stephen Metcalf? Not here. In his place, we have Jessica Winter. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Uh, She's recently back from maternity leave, and so we've bombarded her with podcast requests uh, because we've been missing her dulcet voice for low these four months. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. The Panoply Network got me through many an early morning with the baby. Excellent. Yes. And she's learned to plug Panoply almost immediately upon appearing (laughs) on the podcast. She's such a bro. (laughs) All right. So joining us for our first segment today is Chris Melanfi, who, among other things, pens one of my very favorite features on Browbeat, the Why Is This Song at the Top of the Charts feature. Uh, He's also an expert on pop music, 
charts, the history thereof. And he joins us today to talk about the Blurred Lines verdict. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Thanks, Julia. How are you? Good. We're so glad to have you. So last week, a jury in Los Angeles ruled that the song Blurred Lines by Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke improperly, illegally borrowed, sounded like, somehow infringed upon the copyright of the song Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. So before we get into this verdict, its soundness and its potential implications, let's just listen to the clips in question. Let's start with uh, good old Marvin Gaye. Here's a little bit of Got to Give It Up. And now let's listen to Blurred Lines, The Infringer. Everybody get up. to these two songs, which I didn't actually listen to in my prep for the segment. I just read a lot. Um, so I haven't heard either of them in right. a while. Those are both two really fun songs. Like, I'm glad that both of those songs exist. exist. Right. Yeah. I could live without Blurred Lines, but really? <laughs> we'll get Come to that on. later. I've seen you dance. Come on, Dana. Have you seen me dance two Blurred Lines? No, but I posit that you would in any <laughs> event. I I would agree with that. I, I, I find myself having to often strenuously defend Robin Thicke and this damn song that I don't even love all that much. I agree that whether you love it or hate it, that's kind of immaterial. I I do think that it's the kind of song that people dance to. I kind of think of Robin Thicke and this song as the one night stand America wants to forget. (laughs) This song was like, it was the song of summer of 2013. That's that's official, by the way. It spent 12 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, uh, like about six months on the Hot 100 altogether. It sold more than 7 million copies. It set a record for the most radio play, by the way. So like, this was like a universally loved song. And now we all are kind of like, you know, morning after, oh gosh, what were we all thinking? <laughs> walk of shame. Walk of shame. Yeah, this is the walk of shame song. I mean, prior to 2013, Robin Thicke was a fairly legitimate R&B star, uh, which seems strange when we're talking about the white son of, you know, Alan Thicke, the Growing Pains star, and uh, Gloria Loring, who is a, a singer-actress who had a hit in the 80s. So, you know, he's this odd spawn of Hollywood, and yet he had a pretty legitimate, you know, solid R&B career for the better part of a decade. He he had a, a huge number one hit on the R&B charts back in uh, 2007 called Lost Without You, which was the number one R&B song, no joke, of that year. So prior to Blurred Lines, this guy had a perfectly nice little career going. And then, you know, in 2013, this is kind of like when the other half of America discovered him through Blurred Lines, which was just so much more massive than anything he'd ever done. 
I guess what was in the pocket of things he'd been doing is that he's had a thing for old soul tropes and specifically Marvin Gaye for a while now. Like he had a prior number one R&B hit called Sex Therapy, which for all the world sounds like a mashup of sexual healing and at least two other Marvin Gaye songs. So, you Sex know, therapy also, that's not like a far cry from sexual healing as titles go. <laughs> no, it really isn't. So, you know, you can certainly call Robin Thicke a hack, but what all of the music critics and industry observers have been saying for the last week is you don't have to like this song or this guy to regard this jury verdict as wrongheaded and a miscarriage of justice. So let's start with the verdict and then get to the implications. So what exactly did the jury rule and why is it so troubling to music experts? Okay, so first of all, important details that this is a jury verdict. It wasn't a, a high circuit court judge ruling. So as my friend Keith Harris, who wrote for The Guardian, pointed out, this doesn't necessarily have the binding force of precedent. The way, say, if, if any of you remember, there was a legal case in 1991 against the rapper Bismarck Key, which has been precedent for every sampling issue that has come up in the last 24, 25 years regarding, you know, you basically, if you sample something and it's in any way recognizable, you have to pay for it. Sampling where you actually take a clip from another song, incorporate it, that's been ruled out of bounds. And you have to pay for it. And it's, it's, and the industry has worked its way around that. If you release something that's not a mixtape, it's a, it's a legitimate, you know, major label release, and there's any samples on it, you pretty much clear them. I mean, sometimes artists still try to get away with that, but that gate closed a long time ago. This is an entirely different category, and this is why you see so many music critics and, and industry observers uh, fulminating about this this week, because the idea that if something recaptures the atmosphere or the vibe or the feel of a record without actually duplicating its melody, its tempo, its syncopation, certainly its lyrics, that is now litigable. That's kind of unprecedented. You know, you, you basically, prior to this, I was on uh, The Gist with Mike Pesco about a month ago, and we were talking about a recent case between Sam Smith, the uh, British soul singer, and Tom Petty over uh, the similarity between Sam Smith's massive hit last year, uh, Stay With Me, and uh, Tom Petty's old song, I Won't Back Down. There it was melodic similarity. Basically, the, the five or six notes that are the main chorus of uh, Stay With Me are identical to the main hook of I Won't Back Down. Let's pause just to listen to those two songs. Songs briefly. Right. So this has a history going back quite a ways. If you go all the way back to the early 70s, one of the landmark cases of, of, of copyright infringement was when George Harrison, the former Beatle, recorded My Sweet Lord. My sweet Lord. Mm, my Lord. And he unwittingly according to him and according to the judge who ruled against him, unwittingly copied note for note both the verse and the chorus of He's So Fine by the Chiffons. So there's precedent for total melodic copying. There's precedent for sampling. This is an entirely new category. This is a jury basically saying if you create a song that replicates the atmosphere of a song too much, that may be litigable. Now, what's also mystifying about this jury's verdict is that 
Because of technical details in copyright law, there was a change in copyright law in 1978. The Marvin Gaye song came out in 1977. The judge ruled that they couldn't actually play the Marvin Gaye song at trial, which is bizarre. According to uh, Ben Ratliff at the New York Times, they could play bits of the Robin Thicke song for whatever reason. But because that one postdates the change in copyright, they couldn't play the Marvin Gaye song. So in theory, the jury was ruling about sheet music. They were ruling about the actual notes of the Marvin Gaye song. So I think what everybody's still kind of sorting through the wreckage a week later and trying to figure out is how exactly did this jury only, you know, listen to recreations of the Marvin Gaye song or or hear musicologists analyze it and then come to the conclusion that the songs are identical because the melodies are different, the tempos are different. Um, You know, really, the, the, the only moment you really say to yourself, ah, these songs sound really similar is when you hear them played back to back and you can totally hear the the vibe, the cowbell, the crowd noise, the you know, general atmosphere of the record. That's the part that's overwhelmingly similar. But that's never been litigable before. So do we think that that this is just kind of some wacky jury somewhere making a bad decision and in fact musicians can continue mining the grand history of American pop music and world music generally to make interesting sounding records and probably they will just be able to keep doing so apace and no dire Paul will be cast over the future of music? I mean, if there's one thing this case teaches, it's don't allow a case like this to go to a jury. There's a reason why in something like 90% of cases, the litigants settle before they ever get to a jury because juries are quirky and capricious and you can throw a lot of musicologists at them, but at the end of the day, they're going to go with their gut. And by every reporter's estimation, Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams did not come off well at this trial. Moreover, there were some early depositions before it went to trial uh, that revealed that uh, Robin Thicke was in a you know drug-fueled haze the whole time they were recording the song. He didn't actually write a note of it, even though Thicke and Williams both get equal credit for writing the song. In fact, Pharrell pretty much wrote it lock, stock, and barrel. So the optics of this case for that side, for the defendants, was terrible. The Robin Thicke deposition is a master piece. I mean, we should get dramatic readings of it. Yeah. It's true. The combination of that, the fact that he admits that he was on alcohol and Vicodin when he once told GQ that he had co-authored the song and that he and Pharrell, I think, only showed up a couple times in court and apparently had a kind of a flip attitude, as opposed to Marvin Gaye's family that was sitting there every day at the trial. I think, there, as you say, there were a lot of reasons to find Pharrell and Thicke very uh, antipathetic for the jury. Exactly. And uh, one has to imagine that those extracurricular factors contributed to the verdict. I think it also raises the question of what is copyright law for? Right. I mean, copyright law is meant to preserve economic incentives to create, right? Exactly. So if if, if anyone can just rip you off, you don't have an economic incentive to create. But Robin Thicke can't steal Marvin Gaye's economic incentive to create because Marvin Gaye is dead. Well, and then, of course, there are Marvin Gaye's children who are the actual plaintiffs in this case. So I you know, we could have a whole sidebar discussion sure. of the absurdity of what's become of copyright law and, you know, the length to which copyright law has has been extended. But but yeah, no, you raise a very good point. I mean, what is the, the, the core thing you're looking to protect here? It seems as though this case is saying that you can copyright a style. You can copyright exactly. a style of performance. So you can set out to ape someone's style, which is what popular music is, people aping each other's styles, 
And the law has a chilling effect, even though the law is meant to have the opposite of that effect. Right. I mean, if you extrapolate it to the ultimate degree, you're sort of placing the pop music artist in a vacuum, right? Where right. he or she can't refer back to any any sort of rock and right. roll beats or shuffle sounds right. or cowbells or any element that's right. appeared in a pop song before, which obviously is not going to be the case going forward, but it would be a scary precedent. The, the, this is not like avant-garde music that's right. supposed to wow you with it, the complete novelty and alienness of every sound. Like, ultimately, a great pop song is a song that once you hear it for the first time you feel like you've been hearing it your whole life and part of the way that that happens is because there are great innovators who write just beautiful perfect pop songs and part of it is that they are referencing things that elicit certain emotions remind you of a song you knew 20 years ago or they're kind of playing with this whole alphabet of references and themes that I don't know I want I want them to keep playing with that alphabet all right, so we have visions of a potentially apocalyptic and chilling musical future. <laughs> we also have a sense that this is just a rando jury verdict that may not matter. On a scale of how much this decision will change the mental architecture of a musician in the studio this week. I'm a musician. I'm in the studio this week. How much am I thinking about this verdict? How chilly is it here from 1 to 10 with 10 being super icy? I would put it, this is a bit of a punt on my part, but I would put it at a five because I feel like it could kind of go either way. And I, I'm not sure we're going to see for a, a year or two how this will shake out, whether people regard this as an anomaly because Thick and Pharrell, particularly Pharrell, weren't just trying to copy a sound or a style. They were trying to copy the vibe of a particular song. Maybe this will become a two if everybody determines, well, the reason those guys got nailed is because they weren't just trying to copy Marvin Gaye. They were trying to copy one particular Marvin Gaye song, the vibe of one particular Marvin Gaye song. Or it could become a seven or an eight when people start saying, wow, that reminds me a lot of this previous R&B star's Irv, and you know, I better not sound like that. So it, it really could go in a, in a couple of different directions, depending on how the legal departments at the labels or you know various artists worried about getting drawn out uh, by uh, a complainant react. But one thing, Chris, that it seems like it will definitely result in is um, is industry types trying to keep as many of these litigation situations as possible from going before a jury. Right? There's going to be a lot more settlements. Like, hey, you get three percent credit and your name on future issues of the album. Yeah, and what what worries me a little bit, I mean, not like my heart bleeds for millionaire pop stars, but like, it seems now that there's going to be a lot of trolling of people saying, oh yeah, that reminds me of my hit, Pay Me. And why would you even bother going to a jury? You'll just shrug and cough up uh, because nobody wants to wind up where, where Thick and Williams wound up. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming in and illuminating us on this front. My pleasure, Julia. Thanks. All right. Well, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know whether, like Dana, you claim you will never dance to Blurred Lines again or like... (laughs) Only while holding a lamb in my underwear is in the video. Or like more honest people, you will admit that it's super freaking danceable. And tell us whether you're concerned about this verdict and, and what effect it might have on pop music to come. All right. Well, we are going to pause for a moment here before we move on to our next topic. For a word from our sponsor, we are sponsored this week by My Own Man, a Netflix original documentary which follows director David Sampliner as he learns that he's about to become a father for the first time. David fears he must man up and finally embrace the latent masculinity he's rejected all his life. But as he immerses himself in a strange new world of masculine ideals, including vocal lessons, warrior weekends, and hunting, he realizes that all roads lead back to his own fraught relationship with his father. Intimate, funny, and moving, My Own Man is streaming now only on Netflix. 
All right. Well, joining us for our second segment about Snapchat's new Discover feature is Slate Senior Technology Writer, Will Aremus. Hi, Will. Hey, Julia. We're so excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. It's my first time on the show. Really? How can that be true? It's just wrong. I can't tell you how, but it's true. Um, that seems like an egregious oversight. I'm glad we're correcting it today. So, Snapchat. Snapchat is the wildly popular insta-texting app for teens. The general conceit is you can text images or videos to your friends. Sometimes you can draw on them. You can use captions. There's all kinds of crazy tools at your disposal to make these things. You send them to your pals. They immediately disappear. Uh, There was a bit of a moral panic when it first launched that it was like a teen sexting app. It seems like it's more used for goofy ephemera. And it's huge, hugely successful. This week posted a massive valuation. What was it, Will? $15 billion. That is a lot of money that it is now worth. Um, But we're not going to focus generally on Snapchat. We actually did a classically befuddled segment about Snapchat when it first launched. I remain somewhat befuddled about it as a texting app, I'm happy to admit. We're going to focus more on Snapchat's Discover feature. So Snapchat is getting into the content game, figuring that now that it has a huge audience spending a lot of its time within the app, why not deliver them news and entertainment and video and stories? So, Will, tell us a little bit about this feature, when it launched, and what it is. Yeah, it's funny. If you had said two or three years ago that in 2015 kids would be getting their news from Snapchat, it would have been like great parody, right? Everybody would have laughed. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, that's really the sexting app is really the new news platform. Well, here it is, 2015. Kids are getting their news from Snapchat. It's a new product called Snapchat Discover. And Snapchat partnered with some big media companies like CNN, National Geographic, Vice, uh, People, Cosmopolitan. And these companies create little videos and stories that they can share with, at this point, they can share with everybody on Snapchat. So if you're on Snapchat, you do some some weird swipey maneuvers, <laughs> eventually <laughs> you'll end up on the Discover, uh, the Snapchat Discover tab, and you'll be able to look at, you know, maybe five stories from each of these providers. So like this morning, I went to the ESPN tab, and they had their preview of the bracket and their, their top picks for upsets, and then they had a, a video of like a great block shot from an NBA game last night. And so these providers are able to reach Snapchat's absolutely massive user base. We don't know what it is because it's still a private company, but it has more than 100 million users and maybe approaching 200 million users. So this is really potentially a big new news platform. But those are users of Snapchat itself, not necessarily people who are using this new Discover content on it. That's right. So so probably most people are still using it to send silly messages to their friends. The Discover feature right now is not really prominently featured in the Snapchat app. Then again, nothing really is except for those weird runic symbols that you have to <laughs> you, you have to gain sort of like the secret knowledge from your friends to figure out how to use them. And there is evidence that a lot of people are using it. We're now seeing that the ad rates are just astronomical that, that these media companies are getting. They're getting uh, a CPM, which is like a, a cost per thousand views of your ad, of $100, which is like twice as much as high-end video publishers. It's just, it's just huge, and it's because everybody wants to reach the teens, and this is how they think they're going to do it. So a couple questions on this and a little bit of skepticism about the business model before we get into the cultural experience of watching content within a texting app. I mean, 100 million, 200 million, those are big numbers. Just for comparison's sakes, what are the active user bases of like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook? Do you have those? Much bigger. I mean, uh, Facebook is over a billion, famously. 
Twitter and Instagram. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're in they're in the multiple hundreds of millions. Snapchat is faster growing than either one, though, and it hasn't the the rate of growth has not yet slowed. Okay, so that's a little bit of the business backdrop, Dana. How did you enjoy encountering these media brands within Snapchat? Well, okay. I think that there's two very, very basic problems that I don't get. And maybe, Will, you can tell me why they made these extremely, to me, unintuitive choices. For one thing, when you're in Discover and you're looking at the content, whether it's from CNN, the Food Network, Vice, whatever, all these places that have curated little um, sort of daily menus of content for Snapchat, you can't send links to anyone, right? So say I watched a video on National Geographic of an albino penguin, which I did, and I wanted to send it to you guys to say, hey, here's an albino penguin. I mean, what more basic social media thing could there be that you would want to do than send your friends footage of an albino penguin? And it's impossible to do, (laughs) right? So you can't send out to other users, and you also can't click through to actual National Geographic, actual CNN, right? So it's a closed, it's a completely closed circuit of pre-formed content, which to me felt like they really are not getting the web. But I guess the whole idea, Will, is that they're trying to trap users there so that they'll think about going to National Geographic later. Yeah, I mean, it's you're right. It's 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 almost retrograde in a way. Uh, you know, everybody else has accepted this idea that news today and the media today is is social, and it's you know, and the and the big goal is to get things to go viral to get and people to share, to share them. them. Right. Exactly, but that means sharing on Facebook or Twitter. So you can see why Snapchat, as a as a potential rival to Facebook and Twitter, wouldn't be as interested in that as their primary goal. They've already got tons of people paying attention within their app. And so, yeah, they're going to try to maximize the time that people spend in that Snapchat app. And so they're hosting the content within Snapchat. They're not trying to send you out elsewhere around the web. But that's actually a trend beyond Snapchat as well. If you look at Facebook, this has been a huge concern for media organizations in the past year or so. Facebook wants to host your videos on Facebook. So they want, when you open the Facebook app, and you, somebody shares a video from Slate, say, Facebook would love it if Slate would just put that video right into Facebook so it will autoplay in the mobile app. And Facebook gets to control then what the ads are. And maybe it, it kicks back some of the revenue to Slate eventually. But this is the trend because what the platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat has, have found is that their users like it a lot better if they can just stay there in the app. If they don't have to go out to the web and go to all these different pages that might have weird banner ads or might be slow to load or maybe their video players don't work on your phone. And so that's what Snapchat's trying to do is to create this sort of like fully native Snapchat experience. And what's interesting to me about it from a media perspective is that it's the old school model, right? It's like an old, it's like a print magazine or newspaper. The stuff that's in Snapchat Discover, that's all there is. You're not going anywhere else. It's all curated. It's all selected by editors. It's not based on what your friends are sharing or algorithms or anything like that. Yeah, when Willa Paskin wrote about Snapchat channels for Slate, she talked about how it feels like a throwback to the couch potato mode of passive consumption, where you're just sort of cycling through channels and watching whatever someone else has decided for you. I mean, one thing I think we should do a little bit for our listeners is describe what some of this content is like. So, you know, I agree that the experience is a bit of a media throwback in some ways, although it reminded me more of classic print magazines than it did of TV channels. But before we get into that, let's just describe a little bit how it works. So basically, you you look at this menu of of brands, you click on National Geographic, and you can swipe through a few stories or sort of a billboard for each story that is like a, a GIF or a Vine, a little mini kind of recycling video that promotes whatever the content type is. So maybe it's Cosmopolitan's daily horoscope 
plus emoji of the week, which is a feature that they have, which is kind of genius. Or, you know, it's like a little albino penguin waddling around. And then if you swipe and elect to watch whichever story has been promoted, watch or read, I should say, some of the stories are videos, some of the stories are more classic stories, you get the meat of the content itself. So in the case of the albino penguin, it's a video where a guy describes that there's an albino penguin, and then he points out that he's not actually albino because you can kind of see some color, and maybe he's a chinstrap penguin, and what a rare day at the South Pole. And then the video's over. <laughs> um, and you're right. You can't share it on Facebook or Twitter. You also can't share it on Snapchat. Snapchat. That's like, what I was talking I was about. I going to try and Snapchat it to you guys, and I couldn't That's figure out how to do it. That's the strangest thing about the system to me, that it, within the close, this closed system, you still can't send it around. Well, that's what makes me wonder, like, if you're not someone who follows in the media that this thing existed, it doesn't seem like it's being super heavily promoted on Snapchat. So if you just are using Snapchat in a normal way, like, how would you get into this, and what are the incentives to bring other viewers into this content? The thing that I realized after playing around with Snapchat discover channels for a bit, though, is that there's something really novel feeling about the fact that you can consume an entire channel. Like, we've become so accustomed to the notion of infinite information and that any publication you're a fan of publishes more items in a day than you can possibly read or keep up with, that the notion of like, oh, I'm done. Mm. That's just like a really uncommon feeling. And it's kind of a pleasant feeling, right, to have to have finished something and checked it off your list. So each of these channels has like about five or six stories a day. And a story could just be like a quote from, you know, a famous quote with a little illo. Or maybe it's a personal essay with illustration that's 800 words or so. They really vary in terms of what they are. But you can like consume the whole channel. I consumed the whole Comedy Central channel last night, which was like five two-minute clips from various shows of theirs. Gave me a chance to see a clip from the Nick Kroll show, which I've been reading about forever but haven't actually watched, and forced me to watch a clip from the Tosh.0, which confirmed my decision never to watch Tosh.0. But then it was done. And And then a little ghost pops up and says, see you tomorrow or something like (laughs) that. Yeah, basically they do these daily editions of five stories each. And to me, that experience of completion was like... Very satisfying. But that's so old school to to be satisfied by that. That doesn't seem like something that would satisfy, like, millennial Snapchat users. I just, I have to respond to that and say, to me, that feeling of getting to the ghost who said, we're done, see you tomorrow, was exactly the opposite. I felt like, to me, this content felt like something you would watch on, like, a loop on an airplane or something, you know? Like, Delta has made some sort of very bland bunch of little selections it that you can click exa- through. That is right? uncannily similar to what I thought. I felt like I was on an airplane, and I was looking at my menu of 12 channels, and if you clicked onto a 22-minute episode of a sitcom, you would get a 15-minute version of it with a little bit of animation on top. Yeah, I exactly, exactly the image. That and so I had there's as well. a sense of entrapment to me. It was the opposite <laughs> of this satisfaction. Like I've gotten through. Yeah. I mean, I understand that the infinity of the internet is obviously overwhelming, but at least there's a sense of freedom. Like there's somewhere else to go. And to me, being in this discoverer world felt like being in a closed tube. Well, right. And the content isn't very good. I don't think most of it. So I was. It, it was like satisfying to check off the boxes of oh, I've I've. 
I've gone through all of Cosmo's offerings for the day, but like, <laughs> I've never read Cosmo. I don't think I will read Cosmo. I don't need to read Cosmo. Like, I'll tell that. you one thing. I'm solid on the relationship between Brody Jenner and Kim Kardashian <laughs> and the whole wedding feud, which I was not up to speed on. <laughs> I was not solid, actually. That piece of journalism, quote unquote, was totally unsatisfying for People Magazine because it presented three different views of their relationship and then was just like, shruggy, and then it was next story. <laughs> well, we should also point out that I think that there's a fair uh, amount of range in terms of quality in terms of which of these organizations kind of understand what to do with the channel and which don't. National Geographic seems to understand what to do. I mean, all of us, all four of us, I think, have cited the Penguin at this point. You know, we want Penguin videos. But we want to share the Penguin story. videos. <laughs> We're course. all in our separate houses, lonely, pondering the Penguin and but, wishing the others could know. Absolutely. <laughs> but working with the tools that it has, I think National Geographic understands what it's supposed to be doing. Whereas the, you know, the Daily Mail, the fact that the Daily Mail is in the mix tells me nothing about the Daily Mail, except that the Daily Mail has some notion that they need to be involved with this thing that young people like. And, and it really doesn't go beyond that. I think it's I actually think it's funny that we've been trained to have this impulse to share something. Dana, you mentioned when you saw that Penguin video, you really wanted to share it with people. Uh, but that wasn't something that we did until five years ago. Um, you know, the Facebook like button, I think, is still only like four or five years old. Um, and before that, there was no such thing. But it just seems like that is so much the direction in which the web is going and social media is going. And it just seems so much like something 16-year-olds would want to do in addition to, you know, sending n- naked pictures that disappear after a second. <laughs> but see, the, the theory, the Snapchat theory is that it's actually something that now like 25 and 35 year olds want to do. Snapchat, remember, was sort of a reaction to virality. It was the whole point of Snapchat was let's stop trying to create these perfectly groomed little pieces of, you know, these little Facebook status updates that are trying to optimize to get 40 of our friends to like them or the anxiety of having an Instagram photo and then waiting to see if your friends like it or not. Or on Twitter, you have to build your personal brand all the time. Snapchat was a reaction to that. It was the idea, let's just get back to the idea of communicating with each other as people. You can be silly. You can send a dumb photo or like a, a silly message and it doesn't matter because it's not going on your permanent record. And there, there is no notion of either it, it's a success and it goes viral or it's a failure and it doesn't, it just exists. And, you, and it's just, <laughs> you know, it's just there and, and it's, uh, its value is whatever, you know, whatever you can take from it in the moment. All right. Well, thank you for coming and uh, explaining Snapchat to us as far as any of us can un- hope to understand it. <laughs> Someday we'll assemble a, pol- a panel of under 25-year-olds to make the case for it. I mean, can I just hazard that I know that the big thing to say about Snapchat is that, like, only the young can understand it. Isn't it just possible it's a bad user interface <laughs> if you care enough about navigating your way through it, you will, but that doesn't make it a well-designed interface. No, it doesn't. It's I, I, In a lot of ways, it's a terribly designed interface if your goal is to make it intuitive and understandable to everybody. But my hypothesis is that that's not the goal. The goal is to make it so that it's something you have to learn. It's something, you know, there's, there's shared secret knowledge between kids who teach each other, oh, you know, when you press this purple button, here's what it does, or here's how to add music to your snap. It's like, you know, it's like the, the secret cheat code in a, an old Nintendo game. It's like you feel good about learning how to do this stuff. And the best part is it keeps your parents out of it. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it again. All right. Well, thanks, Will. Thanks for joining us. Um, I hope that we'll have you on again much sooner. I'd love that. Thanks, guys. And, of course, if any of our listeners love Snapchat, want to defend Snapchat, uh, please come onto our Facebook page where we all <laughs> hang out, facebook.com slash culturefest, where we can have a discussion that endures for the ages and possibly goes viral about the ephemerality of Snapchat. 
All right. And before we move on to our final topic, we have a word from our other sponsor this week, which is Retail Me Not. Do any of you guys use this program? No, Hmm. I've never heard of it. Okay. So this is a very cool site and now app that lists promo codes and coupons for ways to get discounts, extra free stuff when you shop. So basically, it's a step in all of my online shopping that before (laughs) I hit checkout, I go to Retail Me Not look up to see whether there's any promo codes I'm unaware of. And sometimes there's like a random, the you know, 30% off because it's St. Patrick's Day. And they tell you the code and you use it and you get an extra discount. And now Retail Me Not is sponsoring the Slate Culture Gab Fest. So an even better reason to use them. So Retail Me Not now has an app you can download that features all of these coupons within it. So you have them in one handy place. And you can actually get a text with an invite to download the free app Right now for your smartphone, just text CULTURE to 42767, and then you can redeem coupons right from the phone whenever you are checking out. Retail Me Not is the best way to have thousands of coupons on your phone so you can save money no matter when you shop. Stop what you're doing and text CULTURE to 42767, and you'll get a text with a link to download the app. And don't forget the text and data rates, of course, may apply. All right, on to our final topic. All right. Our final topic is a bit of a sprawling flyer today, but we thought it would be fun to talk about titles and what makes for a good one. We were inspired in this by a recent article in The New York Times called What I Almost Called My Play, which shares a few succulent details of uh, titles that are and titles that weren't. Dana, you want to run us through a few of those which inspired us to uh, embrace this and then we'll go a little bit more broad. All right. So so this Times article, which is by Eric Pippenberg, basically goes through um, some historical examples and current examples of plays with alternate titles, or rather plays that did not use the title that the playwright originally intended. The first example that he gives is that Oklahoma! Exclamation point, the musical we all know was originally called Away We Go! Exclamation point. And, uh, and he talks a little bit about why Rodgers and Hammerstein made that change. But then he goes through and interviews some, some playwrights who currently have plays running in New York and asks them what their original titles were. So to give you a couple of contrast. And then we're going to get beyond this article, and in fact, beyond theater into titles in general. But some of the examples he gives are The Mystery of Love and Sex, uh, now playing at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, was originally called What is Not. And the author describes talking about her play in progress to uh, to someone she met who was a big playgoer, and the woman held up her hand and said, no, you cannot call your play What <laughs> is Not. No one will go to that. Another example, Robert Askin's play Hand to God was originally called Bad Christians, but given that there was a show called Bad Jews, and of course we've got Bad Santa and Bad Lieutenant, and that's like Bad Teacher, a cliched title at this point, uh, that, that playwright wisely made another choice. And finally, Nick Jones, whose play Verite is, is now playing uh, at the Claire Toe Theater, says that his first title was Suggestions. And he says, I have to read this quote because it's awesome. Every time I said Suggestions aloud, just like right now, I felt embarrassed. Not like it's shameful or stupid, but rather that it didn't make me feel excited. I said Verite aloud to a few friends, and they seemed to like it without knowing what the play was about. I don't know if that's a good sign, but it's not a bad sign, so I gained more confidence in it. So I think the kind of point of this article is that feeling your way to a title is a very intuitive process, and that sometimes feedback helps, saying it to friends, that it's not quite clear to the author sometimes what is the right title for his show. And that was very much the case with the playwright who wrote The Mystery of Love and Sex. The journey from what is not to The Mystery of Love and Sex had a midway point. She was just going to call it Love and Sex. 
And she mentioned this to a friend, and her friend said, Love and Sex is a magenta title, but there is nothing magenta about your writing. Your writing is green, and the mystery of Love and Sex is dark green. And I love <laughs> I love the synesthesia. Yeah, you need a synesthetic that. friend to come up with a good title. <laughs> like, yeah. you, go, you go from this kind of graphic copulation on a plum-colored blanket, and maybe there's like a fuchsia condom involved or something, and then this... <laughs> canopy of dark green, you know, comes over it to to add nuance and shadow and privacy. I I love that story. Yeah, that both sounds like woo-woo and bananas and also completely makes sense to me as someone who, at least in the course of writing headlines for things, has to put titles of a sort on things all the time. Uh, And also someone who's definitely kicked around title ideas with friends who uh, produce books and TV shows and other stuff. It's hard to find the right name for something, but I think when you do find it, to me it feels like, um, like what's the metaphor? It's almost like um, like a marble on a Chinese checkerboard, like when it rolls around and then it just kind of like settles into one of those yeah. little slots. Like you just feel it. You just know when you found the right one. And then, and then like the search is over and your mind stops casting about, I feel like. And I often don't feel like I found the right name or title for something until... I get that sense of settling. Like if I'm still wondering if it's the right name, I usually feel like that's a sign it's not the right name. And sometimes you just have to kind of go with it at that point. You, it's deadline time. You've got to publish the thing somehow, somewhere, whatever it is. And so sometimes you publish things with less than optimal names or titles, but you know when you've nailed it, I think. Right? I guess so, yeah. I mean, there's also the question of whether a good work of art can overcome a bad title or an imperfect title and, and of what makes a good title. I definitely know that the feeling of the, the marble settling into the hole, but without that feeling, is it still possible to have a title that accrues its own value? Right. And that's, of course, a feeling for when you're creating something or helping create something or editing something and you're aware of it as an ineffable possible thing that doesn't have a name yet. But then as readers and consumers of culture, of course, we just meet things with names. And and sometimes it's hard to even imagine how you would have perceived the thing if it had a different name. You know, to to Dana's point, one of my all-time favorite films is There Will Be Blood. And I've always thought that that title was almost like a joke and it and it conceivably undercut the the totally majestic achievement of that film. It's just a titanic achievement and it has this kind of jokey headline. But that, isn't it a biblical quote, the title? I believe it comes from some passage in the Bible. I don't know if that changes your feeling about the title, but I, I don't think it was chosen merely as a joke. No, no spoilers, but it's sort of the way that the film ends, it, it feels like... It feels jokey to me. The Upton Sinclair book on which it is very loosely based is called Oil! Exclamation point. So obviously that should become the next blockbuster uh, <laughs> musical. But I, I don't know. I've always felt uneasy about that title, that there was some other perfect marble settling into its place on the board title for that movie. But you're right. Nothing can take anything away from that movie. It, it could be called anything and it would still, you know, it, that know. wouldn't necessarily See, to me, I love that. I love that movie title. Title. I think it is kind of perfect. And, and yet, when it when you first hear it, it sounds off. It sounds like a phrase that should not be a title. Well, that's. I think there's a real power in this current moment in naming something that sounds unusual like that. Like you're planting a flag that this is not a pure piece of commerce. An old friend and former Slate writer Brendan Kerner has published two books now called, one is called Now the Hell Will Start, and the other is called The Skies Belong to Us. And in both cases, these are interesting historical nonfiction narratives, and both of those titles are quotations taken from 
major players in his story. And are complete sentences, like there will be blood is, right? Yeah, they're sentences, they're evocative, they're strange. And those are non-obvious titles. I mean, the, the second book, The Skies Belong to Us, is about like an insane hijacking, a crazy hijacking, the, the longest long-distance hijacking that ever happened um, during this era of insanely frequent hijacking. I mean, it's a banana story, and that's an elliptical title that doesn't, like, sell hard the notion of, like, skyjackers rule or the age of skyjacking or what, you know, whatever. Like, there's... there's Violence a, in the sky, right? Right, right. Blood aloft. Anyway, there's different things you could have done that are less subtle than those titles. And we ran a piece in Slate four years ago now, I think, that pointed out that there's a depressing trend in Hollywood toward super literal titles, titles wherein the kind of high concept of the pitch becomes just the title itself. So Horrible bosses. Horrible bosses, <laughs> two broke girls, bad teacher. You know, the author points out in the piece, the kind of backstage notion of what Top Gun was, was two hot pilots, but they didn't actually call it two hot pilots. <laughs> well, of um, course, Snakes on a Plane is kind of like the culmination of that trend and is a great title. Yeah, I mean, sort of that's the one that's like the exception that proves the rule. It goes so far that it's in its literalism that it's sort of delightful. But to me, There Will Be Blood just felt like a signifier of cinematic ambition, that it was going to yeah. be... An unusual. It wasn't oil exclamation point or, um, you know, oil fight, <laughs> <laughs> oil fight club. You're bringing me around on this title. This has troubled me for years, and I, I do like that it's a complete sentence that, that hadn't occurred to me. Um, what are some of your guys' all-time favorite titles of things? I am partial to the super short, super evocative title. So one of my favorite all-time movie titles is Safe. You know, you can imagine it in big block letters. You can imagine a you know, typographer having lots of fun with it. You know, the freedom of having like a very short prescriptive menu of options. It's a great film. It, it's directed by Todd Haynes and it stars Julianne Moore as a woman who's increasingly allergic to her environment. And so the title evokes what the protagonist longs for and doesn't have and is trying to get, which is safety. But it also, for me, evokes... I don't know, this this box, this panic room slash prison that she's placed herself in that's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it posits her as this priceless object trapped within this safe. It, it, it just works on so many different levels. I love that title. And I love that film. How about you, Dana? What's at well, the top the of your list? I came up with when we were thinking about um, our favorite titles. I like also titles, Jessica, that do two things at once, and you know that that involve a double meaning. And I think one of the great ones is Double Indemnity. The uh, the the noir classic Double Indemnity is one of those. The noir classic with Fred McMurray and, and Barbara Stanwyck, because of course it's about an insurance scam and the actual um, legal category of double indemnity is important to this scam that they're trying to pull, but it is also about two people getting themselves in big trouble by getting together, right? So that's that's another form of double indemnity. I love that title. Another title that works on multiple levels that I love, love, love is Infinite Jest. It borrows from Hamlet, so the book is sort of setting out its aspirations right there. Like, it's it's aspiring. Maybe it's not aspiring to Hamlet, but it's it's invoking Hamlet, at least. And it, it, it nods to the sheer size and scope of the book. You know, Infinite Jest is this infinite experience. And it also is kind of a warning of the, the sort of controlled hysteria and comic darkness that that pervades the book like you have to kind of surrender to that book's thrall it's what 800 900 
pages, and, and the title telegraphs that experience a little bit. Incidentally, David Foster Wallace is also the author of one of the worst titles, I think, of a, of a book that I love, which is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Oh, oh what? That title is so I great. know. Everyone thinks it's such a great title, but it just, it just feels like notes toward a title to me. Like, I'm looking for the perfect phrase that will sum up a supposedly fun thing that I thought sucked. And it, it just oh, see, I love that incomplete. title. I know everyone does. I um, think to me, part of what I love in a title is rhythm. Maybe what I'm learning from this segment is that I like long titles. Although yeah. I certainly admire the double meaning and and taught metaphor of safe. But there's like a syncopation and unusual meter to a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. That again suggests ambition in its sheer unwieldiness and its trust that it will have your attention despite not being like out there salesmaning it up to you, being like, cruises, aren't they nuts? You know? <laughs> it's a very David Foster Wallace title, right? I mean, if, if it had been called, like, My Alienated Cruise by David Foster Wallace, it wouldn't be I David Foster wallace <laughs> I want to go on an alienated cruise with David Foster Wallace. I mean, I did. I really enjoyed it, but yeah. I'm realizing that I like all these unwieldy titles, and I like I like unwieldily specific titles. Like, here's something that I will posit as a great title, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's oh, yeah. like a great title for a, a movie. That's a great title. Right? And let's not forget the sequel, one of the great sequel titles, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> <laughs> that's a horrible boss's title done right. Yeah, I think that's sort of where where the literalism is actually just unusual and funny. And I've actually been thinking about this with regard to Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I have also been watching and enjoying. I liked her discussion of it last week, Dana. Like, when you use a specific proper name, it really matters what that name is. But, um, like, Kimmy Schmidt is a perfect name for that particular character. Bill and Ted are kind of perfectly doofusy for that franchise. And Unbreakable is... That's an unusual word, actually, to to choose, and an unusual quality for a sitcom to build itself around being about. And so even though it sounds peppy in its kind of rhythm and the way that it, it marries with the theme song of the show, like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, that's like an unusual thing to call something and also metrically attractive to me. So for me, it's all about meter proper names and strangeness. Well, you know who did titles really well and continues to do them really well is Roger Corman, the great producer of, of pulp movies of all sorts since the 60s. And there are many of his movies that would suck you in through the title alone. Bucket of Blood is one Caged that comes to mind. Cage Heat. All-time great title, Caged Heat. <laughs> Definitely. The Man with X-Ray Eyes, one of my favorite Cormans. And then, you know, more recent coinages such as Attack of the 50-Foot Cheerleader or Camel Spiders, which just definitely just lays it right out there. Camel Spiders. Uh, my brother-in-law used to work for Roger Corman, so I, I got many tales of exciting Corman films. And one that came up was uh, Dino Croc. And then, of course, they had to make a sequel to Dino Croc. And what did they call it? Super Gator. <laughs> and then what was the sequel to both of those movies called? Dino Croc versus Super Gator. <laughs> <laughs> but Dino Croc just seems like a great, a great concept. Well, and Jessica, I'm curious, and don't share any more of this than you care to, but you uh, have written a novel, and you sold it, and it's coming out next year, and you mentioned as we were prepping this segment that you are in the midst of title debates. So are you waiting for the marble to settle? 
I am waiting for the marble to settle. Right now, I have a title that is a title that you earn. You do not know the exact meaning of the title until you get to the end of the book. The working title for the book is Taking Tiger Canyon, which, as many friends of mine have said, you know, it sort of sounds like it should be shelved in the East Asian literature section, or maybe it's like a Vietnam memoir or something. <laughs> it's not any of those things. It's a it's a workplace satire uh, set in Manhattan. So it's it's a classic misleading title. And then you get to page 280. You're like, oh, I get it now. And so I'm having an internal debate and I'm, you know, debating with with various advisors and loved ones. You know, what what do we do with this with this title? You know, do we do we hang on to it and take a leap of faith or do we make it something more declarative? I've heard from a few different publishing industry veterans that many people see the platonic ideal of a book title as being prep, the title of Curtis Sittenfeld's debut novel, which like safe, it has that, you know, four letter iconic, there it is, declarativeness to it. I mean, there's one thing, I think that abstract nouns, a single word that is an abstract noun is getting to be overused as a title. And I'm I'm not going to come up with any examples right now, but just things that are called stuff like remorse, abstinence, (laughs) regret. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's been so many movies, and now I can't think of any. Listeners, please write in and tell us, but I feel like every other action movie now is called something like, you know, ambivalence or something like that. <laughs> uh, this is making me feel better about my unwieldy, confusing title. All right. Well, thank you for, for sharing your uh, marble swirling adventure. We will we will return to you once you've got a title and a book, and we'll talk about it then. All right. Listeners, please go to Facebook.com slash CultureFest or Snapchat us and tell us what your favorite titles of things are. How would you do that? I don't know. Maybe you do. Figure it out. <laughs> um, but but the surefire way is Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us your favorite all-time titles and your least favorite titles. And hey, propose some alternate titles for things. That, that sounds fun, too. All right. I think now we endorse, right, team? Yep. All right, Dana, what do you have for us? Well, before I endorse, I have a quick uh, correction from last week for for my endorsement. I endorsed two um, art viewing experiences in Philadelphia, and the second one of them was the Wharton Escherich House, which is this amazing, amazing place, a residence that was made by this kind of proto-arts and crafts carver named Wharton Escherich. But I got the wrong town. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not in Paoli, Pennsylvania. It's very near it, but it's in another suburb of Philly called Malvern, Pennsylvania. So I stand corrected on that. But at any rate, if you look at a map of the Philadelphia area, you can easily find the Wharton Escherich House, and I highly recommend it. Meanwhile, my endorsement for this week, which I hope I can get through with uh, no mistakes, is a movie called Wrecking Crew, which I saw last week on the big screen, but which you can also find on Amazon Instant. It's a music documentary. This actually sort of relates to our our conversation with Chris Melanfi about um, copyright law, etc. But it's the story of this group that was informally known as the Wrecking Crew that was essentially a bunch of really hardcore L.A. studio musicians, incredible technical virtuosic musicians who played on almost every studio produced record between the 60s and the mid 80s it's really incredible so this guy who is the son of Tommy Tedesco this guitarist in the the Wrecking Crew group his son Danny Tedesco directed the movie and it has a little bit of a homemade kind of Valentine for my dad feel his father passed away a few years ago but that is actually a very sweet part of it it reminds me a little bit in spirit of 20 feet from stardom if you saw that a few years ago that was sort of you know bringing to the to the fore these background singers that had been forgotten by music history here it's the studio musicians that have been forgotten by music history but just to learn that the same person played on, say, 
the Do Run Run and uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and, you know, maybe some of these like Marvin Gaye style soul songs that we're talking about and that they could play such a huge range of music perfectly without having ever seen it before. That is the really impressive stuff. So he gathers, you know, the, the still remaining, still living members of the Wrecking Crew together and gets them to tell stories and talk about moments that, you know, a little riff that they made up sort of became the big selling point of a song. And none of them seem particularly grumpy about copyright, but they all sort of have this ironic wry way of saying, like, we know that we're the real reason that these songs are successful. So there's some great characters in it, including this female bassist whose name I'm going to forget, so I won't even say it right now. But she was the one woman who was regularly in these these sessions at the Capitol Records building and stuff like that with the Wrecking Crew and was completely one of the guys and is just this this awesome female bassist. And uh, she's it's sort of worth it for some of her testimony alone. So uh, again, you can find it on Amazon Instant. It's called The Wrecking Crew, and it's directed by Danny Tedesco. Terrific. That sounds amazing. Jessica, what do you have for us? I feel a little sheepish about my endorsement because it's not like GabFest listeners need help finding stories in the New Yorker to read. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is not true because everybody has that stack and figuring out which stories to read. Oh, yeah. I always want orientation in the New Yorker universe. It is a totally vital service. Okay. So no shame. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the support, you guys. Um, So a little orientation. Uh, This is from last week's issue. And uh, it's called Where the Bodies Are Buried. It's by Patrick Radden Keefe. It is 20 pages long. Not everyone might think they need 20 pages of review on the troubles in Northern Ireland, but it is just an astonishing piece. I, I know anecdotally that a lot of people have skipped over it or like started it and didn't finish. It, it, it's amazing. It's about the disappearance of a mother of 10 in Belfast long ago and the fight by her children, uh, particularly her, her son, Michael, to find out what happened to her. Everyone knows what happened to her. She was disappeared by the IRA. She was murdered um, as an alleged informant. She almost certainly was not an informant. Um, and in using her story, her disappearance as a lens through which to see the troubles. We learn about Stephen Ray's ex-wife, who I had no idea was an IRA terrorist, who at one point weighed 75 pounds on a hunger strike. And, And most of all, we learn all about Jerry Adams, who to me is one of the most fascinating, chilling, enigmatic figures of of the 20th century. I mean, he he is just a fascinating figure because his place in history is predicated in a way on plausible deniability. <laughs> like in the peace accords, one side needed to pretend that he was not an officer commanding in the IRA. And the other side, his all of his credibility rested on his history as an officer commanding in the IRA. And he has had to walk this line for 30 years of his life or more. And it's also a beautifully written piece. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Where the Bodies Are Buried by Patrick Radden Keefe in the last week's New Yorker. I can't wait to read that piece. That is high on my list uh, of things to read. I have a log rolling endorsement for this week. My husband is a producer on the HBO show Looking, which is just about to air the finale of its second season this weekend. And Looking is the brainchild of Michael Lannon and Andrew Hay. And Andrew Hay is the really terrific director of the movie Weekend. And The show has a lot of great strengths, but one of them, I think, is this quality that is intrinsic to Andrew Hay's work of just these very small set pieces of real feeling moments in human lives. Like, there's just this eye for detail that is really striking. And my favorite episode of the season and the one that I would commend people to go watch, even if they haven't been following the show, is episode 207 called Looking for a Plot. And I actually don't want to say too much about what it's about because there's 
some somewhat startling revelations fairly early on in it. But the acting and the writing and the pacing is just gorgeous. So I would commend people to go watch that. All right. Well, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Jessica, for sitting in. Thanks so much, you guys. Always fun to have you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our old-fashioned Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. You guys know how to spell it now, right? All right. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Jessica Winter, I'm Julia Turner, and we'll join you next week. What would you think if I told you I've always wanted to hold you I don't know what we're afraid